From Eric Public Media and the Alaska Ice Corporation, this is the podcast Wiki Wikiredia, wherein we read from start to finish the Wikipedia entries that we find most interesting. Today we're going to do the Wikipedia entry of the RMS Titanic, fabled uh, unsinkable ocean liner that sank on its maiden voyage. You can find this, uh, the original Wikipedia page lives at www.wikipedia.org slash wiki slash RMS underscore Titanic. And we're tapping into this text under the Creative Commons license, which permits adaptation and retransmission of the original work provided attribution is made. Wikiredia is similarly distributed under the same Creative Commons license. This is RMS Titanic, Wikiredia Episode 2, date of production, July 15th, 2020. Let's get started. RMS Titanic was a British passenger liner operated by the White Star Line that sank in the North Atlantic Ocean in the early morning hours of April 15, 1912, after striking an iceberg during her maiden voyage from Southampton to New York City. Of the estimated 2,224 passengers and crew aboard, more than 1,500 died, making the sinking one of modern history's deadliest peacetime commercial maritime disasters. RMS Titanic was the largest ship afloat at the time she entered service and was the second of three Olympic-class ocean liners operated by the White Star Line. She was built by Harlan and Wolf Shipyard in Belfast. Thomas Andrews, chief naval architect of the shipyard at the time, died in the disaster. Titanic was under command of Captain Edward Smith, who also went down with the ship. The ocean liner carried some of the wealthiest people in the world, as well as hundreds of immigrants from Great Britain and Ireland, Scandinavia, and elsewhere throughout Europe, who were seeking a new life in the United States. The first-class accommodation was designed to be the pinnacle of comfort and luxury, with a gymnasium, swimming pool, libraries, high-class restaurants, and opulent cabins. A high-powered radio telegraph transmitter was available for setting passenger Marconigrams and for the ship's operational use. Although Titanic had advanced safety features, such as watertight compartments and remotely activated watertight doors, it only carried enough lifeboats for 1,178 people, about half the number on board, and one-third of her total capacity, due to the maritime safety regulations of those days. The ship carried 16 lifeboat davits, which could lower three lifeboats each for a total of 48 boats. However, Titanic carried only 20 lifeboats, four of which were collapsible and proved hard to launch during the sinking. After leaving Southampton on the 10th of April, 1912, Titanic called at Cherbourg in France and Queenstown in Ireland before heading west to New York. On the 14th of April, four days into the crossing at about 375 miles south of Newfoundland, she hit an iceberg at 1.40 p.m. ship's time. The collision caused the hull plates to buckle inwards along her starboard side and opened five of her 16 watertight compartments to the sea. She could only survive four flooding. Meanwhile, passengers and some crew members were evacuated in lifeboats, many of which were launched only partially loaded. A disproportionate number of men were left aboard because of a women and children first protocol for loading the lifeboats. At 2.20 a.m., she broke apart and foundered, with well over 1,000 people still aboard. Just under two hours after Titanic sunk, the cunard liner RMS Carpathia arrived and brought aboard an estimated 705 survivors. The disaster was met with worldwide shock and outrage at the huge loss of life, as well as the regulatory and operational failures that led to it. Public inquiries in Britain and the United States led to major improvements in maritime safety. One of the most important legacies was the establishment of the International Convention for the Safety of Life at Sea in 1914, which still governs maritime safety. 
Several new wireless regulations were passed around the world in an effort to learn from the many missteps in wireless communications, which could have saved many more passengers. The wreck of Titanic was discovered in 1985, more than 70 years after the disaster, during a Franco-American expedition and U.S. military mission. The ship was split in two, and it's gradually disintegrating at a depth of 12,415 feet. Thousands of artifacts have been recovered and displayed at museums around the world. Titanic has become one of the most famous ships in history, depicted in numerous works of popular culture, including books, folk songs, films, exhibits, and memorials. Titanic is the second largest ocean liner wreck in the world, only being surpassed by her sister ship, HMHS Britannic. However, she is the largest sunk while in service as a liner, as Britannic was used as a hospital ship at the time of her sinking. The final survivor of the, of the sinking, Milvina Dean, aged two months at the time, died in 2009 at the age of 97. Background. The name Titanic derives from the Titans of Greek mythology. Built in Belfast, Ireland, in the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland, as it was then known, the RMS Titanic was the second of three Olympic-class ocean liners. The first was the RMS Olympic, and the third was the HMHS Britannic. Britannic was originally to be called Gigantic and was to be over a 1,000 feet long. They were by far the largest vessels of the British shipping company White Star Lines fleet, which comprised 29 steamers and tenders in 1912. The three ships had their genesis in a discussion in mid-1907 between the White Star Line's chairman, J. Bruce Ismay, and the American financier, J.P. Morgan, who controlled the White Star Line's parent corporation, the International Mercantile Marine Company. The White Star Line faced an increasing challenge from its main rivals, Cunard, which had recently launched the Lusitania and the Muritania, the fastest passenger ships then in service, and the German lines Hamburg America and Norddeutscher Lloyd. Ismay preferred to compete on size rather than speed and proposed to commission a new class of liners that would be larger than anything that had gone before, as well as being the last word in comfort and luxury. The company sought an upgrade in their fleet primarily in response to the Cunard Giants, but also to replace their oldest pair of passenger ships still in service, being the SS Teutonic of 1889 and the SS Majestic of 1890. Teutonic was replaced by Olympic, while Majestic was replaced by Titanic. Majestic would be brought back into her old spot on the White Star Line's New York service after Titanic's loss. The ships were constructed by Belfast shipbuilders Harland and Wolfe, who had a long-established relationship with the White Star Line dating back to 1867. Harland and Wolfe were, were given a great deal of latitude in designing the ships for the White Star Line. The usual approach was for the latter to sketch out a general concept, which the former would take away and turn into a ship design. Cost considerations were relatively low on the agenda, and Harland and Wolfe were authorized to spend what it needed on ships, plus a 5% profit margin. In the case of Olympic-class ships, a cost of £3 million for the first two ships was agreed, plus extras to contract and the usual 5% fee. Harland and Wolfe put their leading designers to work designing the Olympic-class vessels. The design was overseen by Lord Peary, a director of both Harland and Wolfe and the White Star Line, naval architect Thomas Andrews, the managing director of Harland and Wolfe's design department, Edward Wilding, Andrews' deputy and responsible for calculating the ship's design, stability, and trim, and Alexander Carlyle, the shipyard's chief draftsman and general manager. Carlyle's responsibilities include the decorations, equipment, and general arrangements, including the implementation of an efficient lifeboat davit design. 
On July 29, 1908, Harlan and Wolf presented the drawings to Jay Bruce Ismay and other White Star Line executives. Ismay approved the design and signed three letters of agreement two days later authorizing the start of construction. At this point, the ship, which was later to become Bitan- uh, Olympic, had no name but was fer- were referred to as simply number 400, as it was Harlan and Wolf's 400 hull. Titanic was based on a revised version of the same design and was given the number 401. Dimensions and layout. Titanic was 882 feet 9 inches long, with a maximum breadth of 92 feet 6 inches. Her total height, measured from the base of the keel to the top of the bridge, was 104 feet. She measured 46,328 gross register tons, with a draft of 34 feet 7 inches. She displaced 52,310 tons. All three of the Olympic-class ships had 10 decks, excluding excluding the top officers' quarters, eight of which were for passenger use. From top to bottom, the decks were the boat deck, on which the lifeboats were housed. It was from here during the early hours of April 15, 1912, that Titanic's lifeboats were lowered into the North Atlantic. The bridge and the wheelhouse were at the forward end, in in front of the captain and officers' quarters. The bridge stood eight feet above the deck, extending out to either side so that the ship could be controlled while docking. The wheelhouse stood within the bridge. The entrance to the first-class grand staircase and gymnasium were located midships along with the raised roof of the first-class lounge, while at the rear of the deck were the roof of the first-class smoke room and the relatively modest second-class entrance. The wood-covered deck was divided into four segregated promenades for officers, first-class passengers, engineers, and second-class passengers, respectively. Lifeboats lined the side of the deck, except in the first-class area, where there was a gap so that the view would not be spoiled. A deck, also called the promenade deck, extending along the entire 546 feet length of the superstructure. It was reserved exclusively for first-class passengers and contained first-class cabins, the first-class lounge, smoke room, reading and writing rooms, and the palm court. B deck, the bridge deck, was the top weight-bearing deck and the uppermost level of the hull. More first-class passenger accommodations were located here with six palatial staterooms featuring their own private promenades. On Titanic, the a la carte restaurant and the Café Parisienne provided luxury dining to the first-class passengers. Both were run by subcontracted chefs and their staffs. All were lost in the disaster. The second-class smoking room and entrance hall were both located on this deck. The The raised forecastle of the ship was forward of the bridge deck, accommodating number one hatch, the main hatch, through to the cargo holds, numerous pieces of machinery, and the anchor housings. After the bridge deck was the raised poop deck, 106 feet long, used as a promenade by third-class passengers. It was where many of Titanic's passengers and crew made their last stand as the ship sunk. The forecastle and the poop deck were separated from the bridge deck by well decks. C deck, the shelter deck, was the highest deck to run uninterrupted from stem to stern. It included both well decks. The aft one served as part of the third-class promenade. Crew cabins were housed below in the forecastle, and the third-class public rooms were housed below in the poop deck. In between were the majority of the first-class cabins in the second-class library. D deck, the saloon deck, was dominated by three large public rooms, the first-class reception room, the first-class dining saloon, and the second-class dining saloon. An open space was provided for third-class passengers. First, second, and third-class passengers had cabins on this deck with berths for firemen located in the bow. It was the highest level reached by the ship's watertight bulkheads, though only by eight of the 15 bulkheads. E deck, the upper deck, was predominantly used for passenger accommodation for all three classes, 
plus berths for cooks, seamen, stewards, and trimmers. Along its length ran a long passageway nicknamed Scotland Road in reference to a famous street in Liverpool. Scotland Road was used by third-class passengers and crew members. F-deck, the middle deck, was the last complete deck and mainly accommodated second and third class passengers in several departments of the crew. The third class dining room saloon was located here, as were the swimming pool, Turkish bath, and kennels. G-deck, the lower deck, was the lowest complete deck that carried passengers and had the lowest portholes just above the waterline. The squash court was located here along with the traveling post office where letters and parcels were sorted, ready for delivery when the ship docked. Food was also stored here. The deck was interrupted at several points by Orlop decks over the boiler, engine, and turbine rooms. Last, the Orlop decks and the tank top. Below that were on the lowest level of the ship below the waterline. The Orlop decks were used as cargo spaces, while the tank top, the inner bottom of the ship's hull, provided the platform on which the ship's boilers, engines, turbines, and electrical generators were housed. This area of the ship was occupied by the engine and boiler rooms, areas which passengers would have been prohibited from seeing. They were connected with higher levels of the ship by flights of stairs, twin sterile spirals, uh, twin spiral stairways near the bow provided access up to D-deck. Features Power Titanic was equipped with three main engines, two reciprocating four-cylinder triple expansion steam engines, and one centrally placed low-pressure Parsons turbine, each driving a propeller. The two reciprocating engines had a combined output of 30,000 horsepower. The output of the steam turbine was 16,000 horsepower. The White Star Line had used the same combination of engines on an earlier liner, the SS Laurentic, where it had been a great success. It provided a good combination of performance and speed. Reciprocating engines by themselves were not powerful enough to propel an Olympic-class liner at the desired speeds, while turbines were sufficiently powered but caused uncomfortable vibrations, a problem that affected the all-turbine Cunard liners Lusitania and Maritania. By combining reciprocating engines with a turbine, fuel usage could be reduced and motive power increased while using the same amount of steam. The two reciprocating engines were each 63 feet long and weighed 720 tons, with their bed plates continuing, uh, contributing a further 195 tons. They were powered by steam, produced by 29 boilers, 24 of which were double-ended and 5 single-ended, which contained a total of 159 furnaces. The boilers were 15 feet 9 inches in diameter and 20 feet long, each weighing 91 tons and capable of holding 48 tons of water. They were heated by burning coal, 6,600 tons of which could be carried in the Titanic's bunkers, with a further 1,092 tons in hold 3. The furnaces required over 600 tons of coal a day to be shoveled into them by hand, requiring the services of 176 firemen working around the clock. 100 tons of ash a day had to be disposed of by ejecting it into the sea. The work was relentless, dirty, and dangerous, and although firemen were paid relatively generously, there was a high suicide rate among those who worked in that capacity. Exhaust steam leaving the reciprocating engines was fed into the turbine, which was uh, situated aft. From there, it passed into a service condenser to increase the efficiency of the turbine so that the steam could be condensed back into water and reused. The engines were attached directly to long shafts, which drove the propellers. There were three, one for each engine. The outer or wing propellers were the largest, each carrying three blades of manganese bronze alloy with a total diameter of 23.5 feet. The middle propeller was slightly smaller at 17 feet in diameter and could be stopped but not reversed. 
Titanic's electrical plant was capable of producing more power than an average city power station of the time. Immediately aft of the turbine engine were four 400-kilowatt steam-driven electric generators used to provide electrical power to the ship, plus two 30-kilowatt auxiliary generators for emergency use. Their location in the stern of the ship meant that they remained operational until the last few minutes before the ship sank. Titanic lacked a searchlight in accordance with the ban on use of searchlights in the Merchant Navy. Technology. The interiors of the Olympic-class ships were subdivided into 16 primary compartments divided by 15 bulkheads, which extended above the waterline. Eleven vertically closing watertight doors could seal off the compartments in the event of an emergency. The ship's exposed decking was made of pine and teak, while interior designs were covered in painted, granulated cork to combat condensation. Standing above the decks were four funnels, each painted buff with black tops. Only three, however, were functional. The last one was a dummy, installed for aesthetic purposes and also for kitchen ventilation. Titanic had two masts, each 155 feet high, which supported derricks for working cargo. Titanic's rudder was so large, at 78 feet 8 inches high, 15 feet 3 inches long, and weighing over 100 tons, that it required steering engines to move it. Two steam-powered steering engines were installed, though only one was used at any one time, with the other one kept in reserve. They were connected to the short tiller through stiff springs to isolate the steering engines from any shocks in heavy seas or during fast changes of direction. As a last resort, the tiller could be moved by ropes connected to two steam capstans. The capstans were also used to raise and lower the ship's five anchors. The ship was equipped with their own waterworks, capable of heating and pumping water to all parts of the vessel via a complex network of pipes and valves. The main water supply was taken aboard while Titanic was in port, but in emergencies the ship could also distill fresh water from seawater, although this was not a straightforward process as the distillation plant quickly became clogged by salt deposits. A network of insulated ducts conveyed warm air, driven by electric fans, around the ship, and the first-class cabins were fitted with additional electric heaters. Titanic's radio telegraph equipment was leased to the White Star Line by the Marconi International Marine Communication Company, which also supplied two of its employees, Jack Phillips and Harold Bride, as operators. The service maintained a 24-hour schedule, primarily sending and receiving passenger telegrams, but also handling navigation messages, including weather reports and ice warnings. The radio room was located on the boat deck in the officer's quarters. A soundproof silent room next to the operating room housed loud equipment, including the transmitter and a motor generator used for producing alternating currents. The operator's living quarters were adjacent to the working office. The ship was equipped with a state-of-the-art 5-kilowatt rotary spark gap transmitter operating under the radio call sign MGY, and communication was conducted in Morse code. This transmitter was one of the first Marconi installations to use a rotary spark gap, which gave Titanic a distinctive musical tone that could be readily distinguished from other signals. The transmitter was one of the most powerful in the world, and guaranteed to broadcast over a radius of 350 miles. An elevated T antenna that spanned the length of the ship was used for transmitting and receiving. The normal operating frequency was 500 kilohertz, however the equipment could operate on short wavelength of 1000 kilohertz that was employed by smaller vessels with shorter antennas. Passenger Facilities 
The passenger facilities aboard Titanic aimed to meet the highest standards of luxury. According to Titanic's general arrangement plans, the ship could accommodate 833 first-class passengers, 614 in second-class, and 1,006 in third-class, for a total passenger capacity of 2,453. In addition, her capacity for crew members exceeded 900, as most documents of her, origi- of her original configuration have stated that her full carrying capacity for both passengers and crew was approximately 3,547. Her interior design was a departure from that of any other passenger liners, which had typically been decorated in the rather heavy style of a manor house or an English country house. Titanic was laid out in a much lighter style to that of contemporary high-class hotels. The Ritz-Carlton was a reference point, with first-class cabins finished in the Empire style. A variety of other decorative styles, ranging from the Renaissance to Louis XIV, were used to decorate cabins in public rooms and in first- and second-class areas of the ship. The aim was to convey an impression that the passengers were in a floating hotel rather than a ship. As one passenger recalled on entering the ship's interior, a passenger would at once lose the feeling that we are on board ship and seem instead to be entering a hall of some great house on shore. Unquote. Among the more novel features available to first-class passengers was a seven-foot deep seawater swimming pool, a gymnasium, a squash court, and a Turkish bath, which comprised electric bath, steam room, cool room, massage room, and hot room. First-class common rooms were impressive in scope and lavishly decorated. They included a lounge in the style of the Palace of Versailles, an enormous reception room, a men's smoking room, a reading and writing room. There was an a la carte restaurant in the style of the Ritz Hotel, which was run as a concession by the famous Italian restaurateur Gaspier Gatti. A café parisienne, decorated in the style of a French sidewalk café, complete with ivy-colored trellises and wicker furniture, was run as an annex to the restaurant. For an extra cost, first-class passengers could enjoy the latest French hot cuisine in the most luxurious of surroundings. There was also a veranda café, where tea and light refreshments were served, that offered grand views of the ocean. At 114 feet long and 92 feet wide, the dining saloon on D-deck was the largest room afloat and could seat almost 600 passengers at any time. Third class, commonly referred to as steerage, accommodations above the Titanic were not as luxurious as first or second class, but even so were better than on many other ships of the time. They reflected improved standards, which the White Star Line had adopted for transatlantic immigrant and lower class travel. On most other North Atlantic passenger ships at the time, third-class accommodations consisted of little more than open dormitories in the forward end of the vessels in which hundreds of people were confined, often without adequate food or toilet facilities. The White Star Line had long since broken that mold. As seen on Titanic, all White Star Line passengers divided their third-class accommodations into two sections, always at opposite ends of the vessel from one another. The established arrangement was that single men quartered in the forward areas while single women, married couples, and families were quartered aft. In addition, while other ships provided only open berth sleeping arrangements, White Star Line vessels provided their third-class passengers with private, small but comfortable cabins capable of accommodating two, four, six, eight, and ten passengers. Third-class accommodations also included their own dining rooms, as well as public gathering areas including adequate open deck space, which aboard, which aboard Titanic comprised the poop deck at the stern, the forward and aft well decks, and a large open space on D-deck, which could be used as a social hall. This was supplemented by the addition of a smoking room for men and a general room on C-deck, which women could use for reading and writing. Although they were not as glamorous in design as spaces seen in upper-class accommodations, they were still far above average for the period. Leisure facilities were provided for all three classes to pass the time. 
As well as making use of the indoor amenities such as the library, smoking rooms, and gymnasium, it was also customary for passengers to socialize on the open deck, promenading or relaxing in hired deck chairs or wooden benches. A passenger list was published before the sailing to inform the public which members of the great and good were on board, and it was not uncommon for ambitious mothers to use the list to identify rich bachelors whom they could introduce their marriageable daughters during the voyage. One of Titanic's most distinctive features was her first-class staircase, known as the Grand Staircase or Grand Stairway. Built of solid English oak with a sweeping curve, the staircase descended through seven decks of the ship, between the boat deck to E-deck, before terminating in a simplified single flight on on F-deck. It was capped with a dome of wrought iron and glass that admitted natural light to the stairwell. Each landing off the staircase gave access to the ornate entrance halls, paneled in the William and Mary style and lit by crystal light fixtures. At the uppermost landing was a large carved wooden panel containing a clock with features of honor and glory crowning time flanking the clock, the clock face. The grand staircase was destroyed during the sinking and is now just a void in the ship which modern explorers have used to access the lower decks. During the filming of James Cameron's Titanic in 1997, his replica of the grand staircase was ripped from its foundations by the force of inrushing water on the set. It has been suggested that during the real event, the entire grand staircase was ejected upwards through the dome. Mail and Cargo Although Titanic was primarily a passenger liner, she also carried a substantial amount of cargo. Her designation as a Royal Mail Ship, RMS, indicated that she carried mail under contract with the Royal Mail, and also for the United States Post Office Department. For the storage of letters, parcels, bullion, coin, and other valuables, 26,000 cubic feet of space in her hold was allocated. The sea post office on G deck was manned by five postal clerks, three Americans and two Britons, who worked 13 hours a day, seven days a week, sorting up to 60,000 items daily. The ship's passengers brought with them a huge amount of baggage. Another 19,455 cubic feet was taken up by first and second class baggage. In addition, there was a considerable quantity of regular cargo, ranging from furniture to foodstuffs, and a 1912 Renault-type CE Coupe de Ville motor car. Despite later myths, the cargo on Titanic's maiden voyage was fairly mundane. There was no gold, exotic minerals, or diamonds, and one of the most famous items lost in the shipwreck, a jeweled copy of Rubiat of Omar Kiam, was valued at only... 405 pounds, or 40,000 pounds today. According to the claims for compensation filed with Commissioner Gilchrist following the conclusion of the Senate inquiry, the single most highly valued item of luggage or cargo was a large neoclassical oil painting entitled La Cincenne Aban by French artist Mary Joseph Biondel. The painting's owner, first class passenger Maurice Heiken Boinstrom Stevenson, filed a claim for 100,000 in compensation for the loss of the artwork. Titanic was equipped with eight electric cranes, four electric winches, three steam winches to lift cargo and baggage in and out of the holds. It is estimated that the ship used some 415 tons of coal whilst in, Sa- whilst in Southampton, simply generating steam to operate, operate the cargo winches and provide heat and light. Lifeboats. Like Olympic, Titanic carried a total of 20 lifeboats. 
14 standard Harland & Wolf lifeboats with a capacity of 65 people each and four Engelhart collapsible lifeboats with a capacity of 47 people each. In addition, she had two emergency cutters with a capacity of 40 people each. Olympic carried at least two collapsible boats on either side of her number one funnel. All of the lifeboats were stored securely on the boat deck and except for collapsible lifeboats A and B connected to davits by ropes. Those on the starboard side were odd numbered from bow to stern while those on the port side were even numbered from bow to stern. Both cutters were kept swung out, hanging from the davits, ready for immediate use, while the collapsible lifeboats C and D were stowed on the boat deck, immediately inboard of boats 1 and 2 respectively. A and B were stored on the roof of the officers' quarters on either side of number 1 funnel. There were no davits to lower them, and their weight would make them difficult to launch by hand. Each boat carried food, water, blankets, and a spare, and a spare life belt. Lifeline ropes on the boat's sides enabled them to save additional people in the water if necessary. Titanic had 16 sets of davits, each able to handle four lifeboats as Carlisle had planned. This gave Titanic the ability to carry up to 64 wooden lifeboats, which could have been enough for 4,000 people, considerably more than her actual capacity. However, the White Star Line decided that only 16 lifeboats and four collapsibles would be carried, which could accommodate 1,178 people, only one-third of Titanic's total capacity. At the time, the Board of, Ti Board of Trade's regulations required British vessels over 10,000 tons to carry only 16 lifeboats with a capacity of 990 occupants. Therefore, the White Star Line actually provided more lifeboat accommodation than was legally required. At the time, lifeboats were intended to ferry survivors from a sinking ship to a rescuing ship, not keep them afloat, the whole population, or to power them to shore. Had the SS Californian responded to Titanic's distress calls, the lifeboats may have been adequate to ferry the passengers to safety as planned. Building and preparing the ship The sheer size of Titanic and her sister ships posed a major engineering challenge for Harlan and Wolfe. No shipbuilder had ever before attempted to construct vessels this size. The ships were constructed on Queens Island, now known as the Titanic Quarter, in Belfast Harbor. Harlan and Wolfe had to demolish three existing shipways and build two new ones, the largest ever constructed up to that time, to accommodate both ships. Their construction was facilitated by an enormous gantry built by Sir William Errol and Company, a Scottish firm responsible for the building of the Fourth Bridge and London's Tower Bridge. The Errol Gantry stood 228 feet high, was 270 feet wide, and 840 feet long, and it weighed more than 6,000 tons. It accommodated a number of mobile cranes, and a separate folding crane capable of lifting 200 tons was brought in from Germany. The construction of Atlantic and Titanic took place virtually in parallel, with, Atlant with Olympic's keel laid down first on 16th of December 1908 and Titanic's on March 31st, 1909. Both ships took about 26 months to build and followed much the same construction process. They were designed essentially as an enormous floating box girder with the keel acting as the backbone and the frames of the hull forming the ribs. At the base of the ships, a double bottom, 5 feet 3 inches deep, supported 300 frames, each between 24 inches and 36 inches apart and measuring up to about 66 feet long. They terminated at the bridge deck and were covered with steel plates which formed the outer skin of the ships. 
The 2,000 hull plates were single pieces of rolled steel plate, mostly up to 6 feet wide and 30 feet long, weighing between 2.5 and and 3 tons. Their thickness varied from 1 inch to 1.5 inch. The plates were laid in clinkered, overlapping fashion from keel to bilge. Above that point, they were laid in the in-and-out fashion, where strake plating was applied in bands, the in-strakes, and and the gaps covered by the out-strakes, overlapping on the edges. Commercial, oxy-fuel, and electric arc welding methods, ubiquitous in fabrication today, were still in their infancy. Like most other iron and steel structures of the era, the hull was held together with over 3 million iron and steel rivets, which by themselves weighed over 1,200 tons. They were fitted using hydraulic machines or hammered in by hand. In the 1990s, some material scientists concluded that the steel plate used for the ship was subject to being especially brittle when cold, and that this brittleness exacerbated the impact damage and hastened the sinking. It is believed that, by the standards at the time, the steel plate's quality was good, not faulty, but that it was inferior to what would be used for shipbuilding purposes in later decades, owing to advances in the metallurgy of steelmaking. As for the rivets, considerable emphasis has also been placed on their quality and strength. Among the last items to be fitted on Titanic before the ship's launch were her two side anchors and one center anchor. The anchors themselves were a challenge to make, with the center anchor being the largest ever forged by hand and weighing nearly 16 tons. Twenty Clydesdale draft horses were needed to haul the center anchor by wagon from Noah Hingley & Sons Limited, Ford Shop in Netherton, near Dudley, United Kingdom, to the Dudley Rail Station two miles away. From there, it was shipped by rail to Fleetwood in Lancashire, before being loaded aboard a ship and sent to Belfast. The work of constructing the ships was difficult and dangerous. For the 15,000 men who worked at Harland and Wolf at the time, safety precautions were rudimentary at best. A lot of the work was carried out without equipment like hard hats or hand guards or machinery. As a result, during Titanic's construction, 246 injuries were recorded, 28 of them severe, such as arms severed by machines or legs crushed under falling pieces of steel. Six people died on the ship herself while she was being constructed and fitted out, and another two died in the shipyard, workyards, workshops, and sheds. Just before the launch, a worker was killed when a piece of wood fell on him. Titanic was launched at 12.15 on May 31, 1911, in the presence of Lord Peary, J., uh, Lord Peary J. Pierpont Morgan, J. Bruce Ismay, and 100,000 onlookers. 22 tons of soap and tallow were spread on the slipway to lubricate the ship's passage into the River Lagan. In keeping with the White Star Line's traditional policy, the ship was not formally named or christened with champagne. The ship was towed to a fitting out berth where over the course of the next year her engines, funnels, and superstructure were installed and her interior was fitted out. Although Titanic was virtually identical to the class's lead ship Olympic, uh, excuse me, Olympic, a few changes were made to distinguish both ships. The most notable, ex- uh, the most notable exterior difference was that Titanic and a third vessel in its class, Britannic, had a steel screen with slide had steel screen with sliding windows installed along the forward half of the A deck promenade. This was installed as a last minute change at the personal request of Bruce Ismay and was intended to provide additional shelter to first class passengers. Extensive changes were made to the B deck on Titanic, as the promenade space in this deck, which had proven unpopular on Olympic, was converted into additional first class cabins, including two opulent parlor suites with their own private promenade spaces. The a la carte restaurant was also enlarged, and the Café cafe Parisienne, an entirely new feature which did not exist on Ti- Olympic, was added. These changes made Titanic slightly heavier than her sister, and thus she could claim to be the largest ship afloat. The work took longer than expected due to design changes requested by Ismay and a temporary pause in work 
commissioned by the Need to Repair Olympic, which had been in a collision on September in September 1911. Had Titanic been finished earlier, she might well have missed her collision with an iceberg. Sea Trials Titanic Sea Trials began at 6 a.m. on Tuesday, the 2nd of April, 1912, just two days after her fitting out was finished and eight days before she was due to leave Southampton on her maiden voyage. The trials were delayed for a day due to bad weather, but by Monday morning it was clear and fair. Aboard were 78 stokers, greasers, and firemen, and 41 members of the crew. No domestic staff appear to have been on board. Representatives of various companies traveled on Titanic Sea Trials, Thomas Andrew and Edward Wilding of Harland & Wolf, and Harold A. Sanderson of IMM. Bruce Ismay and Lord Peary were also uh, were too ill to attend. Jack Phillips and Harold Bride served as radio operators and performing fine-tuning of the Marconi equipment. F uh, Francis Carruthers, the surveyor from the Board of Trade, was also present to see that everything worked and that the ship was fit to carry passengers. The Sea Charles consisted of a number of tests of her handling characteristics, carried out first in Belfast Louf and then in the open waters of the Irish Sea. Over the course of about 12 hours, Titanic was driven at different speeds, her turning ability was tested, and a crash stop was performed in which the engines were reversed full ahead to full astern, bringing her to a stop in 850 yards, or 3 minutes and 15 seconds. The ship covered a distance of about 80 nautical miles, averaging 18 knots and reaching a maximum speed of just under 21 knots. On returning to Belfast at about 7 p.m., the surveyors signed an agreement and account of voyages and crew vowed for 12 months, which declared the ship seaworthy. An hour later, Titanic departed Belfast to head to Southampton, a voyage of about 570 nautical miles. After a journey lasting 28 hours, she arrived around midnight on April 4th and was towed to the port's berth 44, ready for the arrival of her passengers and the remainder of her crew. Maiden Voyage Both Olympic and Titanic registered Liverpool as their home port. The offices of the White Star Line, as well as Cunard, were in Liverpool, and up until the introduction of the Olympic, most British ocean liners for both Cunard and White Star, such as the Lusitania and the Muritania, sailed out of Liverpool, followed by a port of call in Queenstown, Ireland. Since the company's founding in 1845, a vast majority of their operations have taken place out of Liverpool. However, in 1907, White Star Line established another service out of the port of Southampton on England's south coast, which became known as White Star's Express Service. Southampton had many advantages over Liverpool, the first being proximity to London. In addition, Southampton, being on the south coast, allowed ships to easily cross the English Channel and make a port of call on the northern coast of France, usually at Cherbourg. This allowed British ships to pick up clientele from continental Europe before recrossing the channel and picking up passengers at Queenstown. The Southampton Cherbourg New York run would become so popular that most British ocean liners began using the port after World War I. Out of respect for Liverpool, ships continued to be registered there until the early 1960s. Queen Elizabeth II was one of the first ships registered in Southampton when introduced into service by Cunard in 1969. Titanic's maiden voyage was intended to be the first of many transatlantic crossings between Southampton and New York via Cherbourg and Queenstown on westbound runs, returning via Plymouth in England while eastbound. Indeed, her entire schedule of voyages through December 1912 still exists. When the route was established, four ships were assigned to that service. In addition to the Teutonic and Majestic, 
the RMS Oceanic and the brand new RMS Adriatic sailed the route. When the Olympic entered service in June 1911, she replaced Teutonic, which after completing her last run on the service in late April, was transferred to the Dominion Line's Canadian service. That following August, Adriatic was transferred to the White Star Line's main Liverpool, New York service, and in November, Majestic was withdrawn from service, impending the arrival of Titanic in the coming months, and it was mothballed as a reserve ship. White Star Line's initial plans for Olympic and Titanic on the Southampton run followed the same routine as their predecessors had done before them. Each would sail once every three weeks from Southampton and New York, usually leaving at noon each Wednesday from Southampton and each Saturday from New York, thus enabling the White Star Line to offer weekly sailings in each direction. Special trains were scheduled from London and Paris to convey passengers to Southampton and Cherbourg, respectively. The deepwater dock at Southampton, then known as White Star Dock, had been especially constructed to accommodate the new Olympic-class liners and had opened in 1911. Maiden Voyage Crew Titanic had around 885 crew members on board for her maiden voyage. Like other vessels of the time, she did not have a permanent crew, and the vast majority of crew members were casual workers who only came aboard the ship a few hours before she sailed from Southampton. The process of signing up recruits had become begun on March 23rd, and some had been sent to Belfast where they served as skeleton crew during Titanic sea trials and passage to England at the start of April. Captain Edward John Smith, the most senior of the White Star Line's captains, was transferred from Olympic to take command of Titanic. Henry Tingle Wild also came across from Olympic to take the post of chief mate. Titanic's previously designated chief mate and first officer, William McMaster Murdoch and Charles Lightoller, were bumped down to the ranks of first and second officer, uh, excuse me, first and second officer, respectively. The original second officer, David Blair, was dropped altogether. The third officer was Herbert Pittman, MBE, the only deck officer who was not a member of the Royal Naval Reserve. Pittman was the second to last surviving officer. Titanic's crew were divided into three principal departments: deck with 66 crew, engine with 325, and victualing <laughs> with 494. Victualing. Victualing with 494. The vast majority of the crew were thus not seamen, but it were either engineers, firemen, stokers, responsible for looking after the engines, or steward and galley staff responsible for the passengers. Of these, over 97% were male. Just 23% just 23 of the crew were, were female, mainly stewardesses. The rest represented a great variety of professions: bakers, chefs, butchers, fishmongers, dishwashers, stewards, gymnasium instructors, laundry men, waiters, Bed makers, cleaners, and even a printer who produced a daily newspaper for passengers called the Atlantic Daily Bulletin with the latest news received by the ship's wireless operators. Most of the crew signed on in Southampton on the 6th of April, 1912, and in all, 699 of the crew came from there, and 40% were natives of the town. A few specialist staff were self-employed or were subcontractors. This included five postal clerk five postal clerks who worked for the Royal Mail and the United States Post Office Department, the staff of the First Class a la carte restaurant and the Café Parisien, the radio operators who were employed, employed by Marconi, and the eight musicians who were employed by an agency and traveled as second-class passengers. Crew pay varied greatly from Captain Smith's 105 pounds a month, equivalent to 10,500 pounds today, to the 3 pounds, 350 pounds today, that a stewardess earned. The lower-paid victualling staff could, however, supplement their wages substantially through tips 
from passengers. Maiden Voyage, Passengers. Titanic's passengers numbered approximately 1,317 people, 324 in first, 284 in second, and 709 in third class. Of these, 869 were male and 447 female. There were 107 children aboard, the largest number of whom were in third class. The ship was considerably under capacity on her maiden voyage as she should, could accommodate 2,453 passengers. Usually, a high-prestige vessel like Titanic could expect to be fully booked on its maiden voyage. However, a national coal strike in the UK had caused considerable disruption to shipping schedules in the spring of 1912, causing many crossings to be cancelled. Many would-be passengers chose to postpone their travel plans until the strike was over. The strike had finished a few days before Titanic sailed, however that was too late to have much of an effect. Titanic was able to sail on the scheduled date only because coal was transferred from other vessels which were tied up at Southampton, such as SS City of New York and RMS Oceanic, as well as coal Olympic had brought back from previous voyage to New York, which had been stored at the White Star Dock. Some of the most prominent people of the day booked a passage aboard Titanic, traveling in first class. Among them were the American millionaire John Jacob Astor IV and his wife Madeline Force Astor, industrialist Benjamin Guggenheim, sculptor Francis Davis Millet, Macy's owner Isidore Strauss and his wife Ida, Denver millionaires Margaret Molly Brown, Sir Cosmo Duff Gordon and his wife Cotier Lacey, Lady Duff Gordon, Lieutenant Colonel Arthur Pouchon, writer and historian Archibald Gracie, cricketer and businessman John B. Thayer and his wife Marion and son Jack, George Dunton Widener, and his wife, Eleanor, and son, Henry. Excuse me, Harry. Noelle Leslie, Countess of the Rothes, Countess of Rothes, Roths, Mr. and Mrs. Charles M. Hayes, Mr. and Mrs. Henry S. Harper, Mr. and Mrs. Walter D. Douglas, Mr. and Mrs. G.D. Wick, G.D. Wick, and uh, Mrs. Henry B. Harris, Mrs. Arthur L. Ryanson, Mr. and Mrs. Hudson J.C. Allison, Mr. and Mrs. Dickinson Bishop, noted architect Edward Austin Kent, brewery heir Harry Molson, oh, that's interesting, tennis players Carl Baer and Dick Williams, author and socialite Helen Churchill Candy, future lawyer and Sir Forget Elsie Bowerman and her mother, mother Edith, Judith and social reformer, journalist and social reformer William Thomas Stead, journalist and fashion buyer Edith, Edith Rosenbaum, Philadelphia and New York socialite Edith Corse. Evans, wealthy divorcee Charlotte Drake Cardiza, French sculptor Paul Chevrer, Chevrer, author Jacques Futrell, with chairman of the Holland America line Johan Rochon, author Wellington Ross's son John H. Ross, Washington Roebling's nephew Washington A. Roebling, Andrew Sachs's daughter Lelia Sachs Meyer, with her husband Edgar Joseph Meyer, son of Mark Eugene Meyer, William A. Clark's Nephew Walter M. Clark with his wife Virginia, great grandson of the soap manufacturer Andrew Pears, Thomas C. Pears with his wife, John S. Pillsbury, John S. Pillsbury's honeymooning grandson John P. Snyder, and his wife Nell, Dorothy Parker's New York manufacturer, okay, Dorothy Parker's New York manufacturer uncle Martin Rothschild and his wife Elizabeth, among others. Titanic's owner J.P. Morgan was scheduled to travel on the maiden voyage but canceled at the last minute. 
Also aboard the ship were the White Star Line's managing director, J. Bruce Ismay, and Titanic's designer, Thomas Andrews, who was on board to observe any problems and assess general performance of the new ship. The exact number of people aboard is not known, and not all of those who had booked tickets made it to the ship. About 50 people canceled for various reasons, and not all of those who boarded stayed aboard for the entire journey insert joke here. Fares varied depending on class and season. Third class fares from London, Southampton, or Queenston, Queenstown cost £7, equivalent to £700 today, while the cheapest first class fares cost £23, or £2,300 today. The most expensive first class suites were to have cost up to £870 in high season, which is £870,000 of today's money. Maiden Voyage Collecting Passengers Titanic's Maiden Voyage began on Wednesday, April 10, 1912. Following the embarkation of the crew, the passengers began arriving at 9.30 a.m. when the London and Southwestern Railway's boat train from London Waterloo Station reached Southampton Terminus Railway Station on the quay side along Titanic's berth. The large number of third-class passengers meant that they were the first to board, with the first and second-class passengers following up to an hour before departure. Stewards showed them to their captains, and first-class passengers were personally greeted by Captain Smith. Third-class passengers were inspected for ailments and physical impairments that might lead to them being refused entry to the United States, a prospect that the White Star Line wished to avoid, as it would then have to carry anyone who failed the examination back across the Atlantic. In all, 920 passengers boarded the Titanic at Southampton. 179 first-class, 247 second-class, and 494 in third-class. Additional passengers were to be picked up at Cherbourg and Queenstown. The maiden voyage began at noon, as scheduled. An accident was narrowly averted only a few minutes later as Titanic passed the moored liners SS City of New York of the American Line and Oceanic of the White Star Line, the latter of which would have been her running mate on the service from Southampton. Titanic's huge displacement calls caused both of the smaller ships to be lifted by a bulge of water and then drop into a trough. New York's mooring cables could not take the sudden strain and snapped, swinging her around, stern first, towards Titanic. A nearby tugboat, Vulcan, came to the rescue by taking New York under tow, and Captain Smith ordered Titanic's engines to be put full astern. The two ships avoided collision by a matter of about four feet. The incident delayed Titanic's departure for about an hour, while the drifting New York was brought under control. After making it safely through the complex tides and channels of Southampton water and the Solent, the Titanic disembarked the Southampton pilot and the NAB light ship and headed out into the English Channel. She headed for the French port of Cherbourg, a journey of 77 nautical miles. The weather was windy, very fine, but cold and overcast. Because Cherbourg lacked docking facilities for a ship the size of Titanic, tenders had to be used to transfer passengers from shore to ship. The White Star Line operated two at Cherbourg, the SS Traffic and the SS Nomadic. Both had been designed specifically as tenders for the Olympic-class liners and were launched shortly after Titanic. Four hours after Titanic left Southampton, she arrived at Cherbourg and was met there by the tenders. There, 274 additional passengers were taken aboard. 24 passengers were left aboard the tenders to be conveyed to the shore, having booked only a cross-channel passage. The process was completed with only 90 minutes, and at 8 p.m., Titanic weighed anchor and left for Queenstown with the weather continuing cold and windy. At 11.30 a.m. on Thursday, April 11th, Titanic arrived at Cork Harbor on the south coast of Ireland. It was partly cloudy but relatively warm day with brisk wind. 
Again, the dock facilities were not suitable for a ship of Titanic size, and tenders were used to bring passengers aboard. In all, 123 passengers boarded Titanic at Queenstown, three first class, seven second class, and 113 third class. In addition to the 24 cross-channel passengers who had disembarked at Cherbourg, another seven passengers had booked an overnight passage from Southampton to Queenstown. Among the seven was Father Francis Brown, a Jesuit trainee who was a keen photographer and took many photographs aboard Titanic, including the last known photograph of the ship. A decidedly unofficial departure was that of a crew member, Stoker John Coffey, a Queenstown native who sneaked off the ship by hiding under mailbags being transported to shore. Titanic weighed anchor the last time at 1.30 p.m. and departed on her westward journey across the Atlantic. Maiden Voyage Atlantic Crossing Titanic was planned to arrive at New York Pier 59 on the morning of April 17th. After leaving Queenstown, Titanic followed the Irish coast as far as Fastnet, Fastnet Rock a distance of some 55 nautical miles. From there, she traveled 1,620 nautical miles along a great circle route across the North Atlantic to reach a spot in the ocean known as the Corner, southeast of Newfoundland, where westbound steamers carried, a cha- carried out a change of course. Titanic sailed only a few hours past the Corner on the rum blind leg of 1,023 nautical miles to Nantucket Shoals Light, where she made her fatal contact with an iceberg. The final leg of the journey would have been an additional 193 nautical miles to Ambrose Light and finally to New York Harbor. From April 11th to local apparent noon the next day, Titanic covered 484 nautical miles. The following day, 519 nautical miles, and by noon on the final day of her voyage, 546 nautical miles. From then until the time of her sinking, she traveled another 258 nautical miles, averaging about 21 knots. The weather cleared as she left Ireland under cloudy skies with a headwind. Temperatures remained fairly mild on Saturday, April 13th, but the following day, Titanic crossed a cold weather front with strong winds and waves of up to 8 feet. Those died down as the day progressed until by the evening of Sunday, April 14th, it became clear, calm, and very cold. The first three days of the voyage from Queenstown had passed without apparent incident. A fire had begun in one of Titanic's coal bunkers approximately 10 days prior to the ship's departure and continued to burn for several days into its voyage, but passengers were unaware of this situation. Fires occurred frequently on board steamships at the time due to spontaneous combustion of the coal. The fires had to be extinguished with fire hoses by moving the coal on top to another bunker and by removing the burning coal and feeding it into the furnace. The fire was finally extinguished on April 14th. There's been some discussion, speculation, as to whether this fire and the attempts to extinguish it may have made the ship more vulnerable to its fate. Titanic received a series of warnings from other ships of drifting ice in the area of the Great Banks of Newfoundland. One of the ships to warn Titanic was the Atlantic Line's Misaba. Nevertheless, the ship continued at full steam ahead, which was standard practice at the time. Although the ship was not trying to set a speed record, timekeeping was a priority, and under prevailing maritime practices, ships were often operated at close to full speed, with ice warnings seen as advisories and reliance placed upon lookouts and the watch on the bridge. It was generally believed that ice posed little danger to large vessels. Close calls with ice were not uncommon, and even head-on collisions had not been disastrous. In 1907, 
the Crown Prince Wilhelm, a German liner, had rammed an iceberg but still had been able to com- complete her voyage, and Captain Smith himself had declared in 1907 that he could, he could, quote, not imagine any condition which would cause a ship to founder. Modern shipbuilding has gone beyond that, unquote. RMS Titanic, sinking. At 11.40 p.m. on April 14th, lookout Frederick Fleet spotted an iceberg immediately ahead of Titanic and alerted the bridge. First officer, William Murdoch, ordered the ship to be steered around the obstacle and the engine stopped, but it was too late. The starboard side of the Titanic struck the iceberg, creating a series of holes below the waterline. The hull was not punctured by the iceberg, but rather dented such that the hull's seams buckled and separated, allowing water to seep in. Five of the ship's watertight compartments were breached, It soon became clear that the ship was doomed, as she could not survive more than four compartments being flooded. Titanic began sinking bow first, with water spilling from compartment to compartment as her angle in the water became steeper. Those aboard Titanic were ill-prepared for such an emergency. In accordance with accepted practices of the time, as ships were seen as largely unsinkable and lifeboats were intended to transfer passengers to nearby rescue vessels, Titanic only had enough lifeboats to carry about half of those on board. If the ship had carried her full complement of about 3,339 passengers and crew, only about a third could have been accommodated in the lifeboats. The crew had not been trained adequately in carrying out an evacuation. The officers did not know how many they could safely put aboard the lifeboats boats and launched many of them barely half full. Third-class passengers were largely left to fend for themselves, causing many of them to become trapped below decks as the ship filled with water. The women and children first protocol was generally followed while loading the lifeboats and most of the male passengers and crew were left aboard. Between 2.10 a.m. and 2.15 a.m., a little over two and a half hours after Titanic struck the iceberg, her rate of sinking suddenly increased as the boat dipped underwater and the sea poured in through open hatches and grates. As her unsupported stern rose out of the water, exposing the propellers, the ship broke in two main pieces between the second and third funnels due to the immense forces on the keel. With the bow underwater and air trapped in the stern, the stern remained afloat and buoyant for a few minutes longer, rising to a nearly vertical angle with hundreds of people still clinging to it, before foundering at 2.20 a.m. For many years, it was generally generally believed that the ship sank in one piece, but when the wreck was located many years later, it was discovered that the ship had fully broken in two. All remaining passengers and crew were immersed in lethally cold water with a temperature of 28 degrees Fahrenheit. Sudden immersion into freezing water typically causes death within minutes, either from cardiac arrest, uncontrollable breathing of water, or cold incapacitation, not as commonly believed from hypothermia. And almost all of those in the water died of cardiac arrest or other body bodily reactions to freezing water within 15 to 30 minutes. Only five of them were helped into the lifeboats, though the lifeboats had room for almost 500 more passengers. Distress signals were sent by wireless, rockets, and lamp, but none of the ships that responded were near enough to reach the Titanic before she sank. A radio operator on board the Burma, for instance, estimated that it would be 6 a.m. before the liner could arrive at the scene. Meanwhile, the SS Californian, which was the last to have been in contact before the collision, saw Titanic's flares but failed to assist. Around 4 a.m., RMS Carpathia arrived on the scene in response to Titanic's earlier distress calls. About 710 people survived the disaster and were conveyed to Carpathia, uh, by Carpathia to New York, Titanic's original destination, while at least 1,500 people lost their lives. Carpathia's captain described the 
described the place as an ice field, an ice field that had included 20 large bergs measuring up to 200 feet high and numerous small bergs, as well as ice flows and debris from Titanic. Passengers described being in the middle of a vast white plain of ice studded with uh, uh, icebergs. This area is now known as Iceberg Alley. RMS Titanic, Aftermath of the Sinking, Arrival of the Carpathia in New York. RMS Carpathia took three days to reach New York after leaving the scene of the disaster. Her journey was slowed by pack ice, fog, thunderstorms, and rough seas. She was, however, able to pass news to the outside world by wireless about what had happened. The initial reports were confusing, leading the American press to report erroneously on on, uh, April 15th that Titanic was being towed to port by the SS Virginian. Later that day, confirmation came through that Titanic had been lost and most of her passengers and crew had died. The news attracted crowds of people to the White Star Line's offices in London, New York, Montreal, Southampton, Liverpool, and Belfast. It hit hardest in Southampton, where people suffered the greatest losses from the sinking. Four out of every five crew members came from this town. Carpathia docked at 9.30 p.m. on April 18th at New York's Pier 54 and was greeted by some 40,000 people waiting at Quayside in the heavy rain. Immediate relief in the form of clothing and transportation to shelters was provided by the Women's Relief Committee, the Traveler's Aid Society of New York, and the Council of Jewish Women, among other organizations. Many of Titanic's surviving passengers did not linger in New York, but headed onwards immediately to relatives' homes. Some of the wealthier survivors chartered private trains to take them home, and the Pennsylvania Railroad laid on a special train free of charge to take survivors to Philadelphia. Titanic's 214 surviving crew members were taken to the Red Star Line steamer SS Lapland, where they were accommodated in passenger cabins. Carpathia was hurriedly restocked with food and provisions before resuming her journey to Flume, Austria-Hungary. Her crew were given a bonus of a month's wages by Cunard as a reward for their actions, and some of Titanic's passengers joined together to give them an additional bonus of nearly 900 pounds, 90,000 pounds today, which was divided among the crew members. The ship's arrival in New York led to a frenzy of press interest, with newspapers competing to be the first to report the survivors' stories. Some reporters bribed their way aboard the pilot boat New York, which guided Carpathia into harbor, and one even managed to get onto the Carpathia before she docked. Crowds gathered outside newspaper offices to see the latest reports being posted in the windows or on billboards. It took another four days for a complete list of casualties to be compiled and released, adding to the agony of relatives waiting for news of those who had been aboard Titanic. RMS Titanic, Insurance, Aid for Survivors, and Lawsuits. In January 1912, the hulls and equipment of Titanic and Olympic had been insured through Lloyd's of London and London Marine Insurance. The total coverage was £1 million per ship. This policy was to be free from all average under £150,000, meaning that the insurers would only pay for damage in excess of that sum. The premium negotiated by the brokers Willis Faber and Company, now Willis Group, was uh, 75 pounds per or 75 pence per 100 pounds or 7,500 pounds for the term of one year. Lloyd's paid the White Star Line the full sum owed to them within 30 days. Uh, 
Many charities were set up to help the victims and their families, many of whom lost their sole breadwinner, or in the case of many third-class survivors, everything they owned. In New York City, for example, a joint committee of the American Red Cross and charity organization formed to disperse financial aid to survivors and dependents of those who died. On April 29th, Enrico Caruso and Mary Garden and members of the Metropolitan Opera raised $12,000, that's $300,000 in today's cash, in benefits for victims of the disaster by giving special concerts in which versions of Autumn and Nearer My God to Thee were part of the program. In Britain, relief funds were organized for the families of Titanic's lost crew and members, raising nearly 450,000 pounds, that being 45 million pounds today. One such fund was still in operation as late as the 1960s. In the United States and Britain, more than 60 survivors combined to sue the White Star Line for damages connected to the loss of life and baggage. <laughs> connected to the loss of life and baggage. The claims totaled 16,804,000, which is approximately 419 million in today's US dollars, which was far in excess of what the White of what White Star argued it was responsible for as a limited liability company under American law. Because the bulk of the litigants were in the United States, White Star petitioned the United States Supreme Court in 1914, which ruled in its favor that it qualified as an LLC and found that the causes of the ship's sinking were largely unforeseeable rather than due to negligence. This sharply limited the scope of damages survivors and family members were entitled to prompting them to reduce their claims to some 2.5 million. White Star only settled for 664,000, again that's nearly 16.56 million in today's dollars, about 27% of the original total sought by survivors. The settlement was agreed to by 44 of the claimants in December 1915 with 500,000 uh, U.S. dollars set aside for the American claimants, $50,000 set aside for the British claimants, and 114000 to go towards interest and legal expenses. RMS Titanic, Investigations into the Disaster. Uh, see also uh, individual main articles on these two specific related topics, United States Senate Inquiry into the Sinking of the RMS Titanic, and the other uh, independent page, British Wreck Commission's Inquiry into the Sinking of the Titanic. Both of those uh, gargantuan rabbit holes, I'm sure. Even before the survivors arrived in New York, investigations were being planned to discover what happened and what could be done to prevent a recurrence. Inquiries were held in both the United States and the United Kingdom, the former more robustly critical of traditions and practices and scathing of the failures involved, and the latter broadly more technical and expert-oriented. The U.S. Senate's inquiry into the disaster was initiated on April 18th, the day after uh, Carpathia arrived in New York. The chairman, Senior William Alden Smith, wanted to gather accounts from passengers and crew while the events were still fresh in their minds. Smith also needed to subpoena all surviving British passengers and crew while they were still on American soil, which prevented them from returning to the UK before the American inquiry was completed on May 25th. The British press condemned Smith as an opportunist insensitively, insensitively, insens insensitively, 
insensitively <laughs> forcing an inquiry as a means of gaining political prestige and seizing, quote, his moment to stand on the world stage, unquote. Smith, however, already had a reputation as a campaigner, campaigner for safety on U.S. railroads and wanted to investigate as many possible malpractice malpractices by railroad tycoon J.P. Morgan, Titanic's ultimate owner. The British Board of Trade's inquiry into the disaster was headed by Lord Bursley and took place between the 2nd of May and the 3rd of July. Being run by the Board of Trade, who had previously approved the ship, it was seen by some as having little interest in its own or White Star Line's conduct being found negligent. Each inquiry took testimony from both passengers and crew of Titanic, crew members of Leland's Line Californian, Captain Arthur Rostron of Carpathia, and other experts. The British inquiry also took far, far greater expert testimony, making it the longest and most detailed court of inquiry in British history up to that time. The two inquiries reached broadly similar conclusions. The regulations on the number of lifeboats that ships had to carry were out of date and inadequate. Captain Smith had failed to take proper heat of ice warnings, the lifeboats had not been properly uh, filled or crewed, and the collision was a direct result of steaming into a dangerous area at too high of a speed. Neither inquiry's findings listed negligence by IMM or the White Star Line as a factor. The American inquiry concluded that since those involved had followed standard practice, the disaster was an act of God. The British inquiry concluded that Smith had followed long-standing practice that had not previously been shown to be unsafe, noting that British ships alone had carried 3.5 million passengers over the previous decade with the loss of just 10 lives, and concluded that Smith had had done, quote, only that which other skilled men would have done in the same position, unquote. Lord Mersley did, however, find fault with the, quote, extremely high speed, uh, which was maintained, unquote, following numerous ice warnings, noting that without hindsight, quote, what a, what a mistake in the case of Titanic, without doubt, be negligence in any similar case in the future, unquote. The recommendations included strong suggestions to major changes in maritime regulations to implement new safety measures, such as ins ensuring that more lifeboats were provided, that lifeboat drills were properly carried out, and that wireless equipment on passenger ships was manned around the clock. An international ice patrol was set up to monitor the presence of icebergs in the North Atlantic, and maritime safety regulations were harmonized internationally through the International Convention for the Safety of Life at Sea. Both measures are still in force today. On June 18, 1912, Guglielmo Marconi gave evidence to the Court of Inquiry regarding the telegraphy. Its final report recommended that all liners carry the system and that sufficient operators maintain a constant service. Uh, RMS Titanic, Roll of the SS Californian. One of the most controversial issues examined by the inquiries was the role played by the SS Californian, which had been only a few miles from Titanic but had not picked up on her distress calls or responded to her signal rockets. Californian, in fact, had warned Titanic by radio of the ice pack earlier that night but was rebuked by Titanic's senior wireless operator Jack Phillips. Testimony before the British inquiry revealed that at 10.10 p.m., Californian observed the lights of a ship to the south. It was later agreed between Captain Stanley Lord and 3rd Officer C.V. Groves that this was a passenger liner. At 11.50 p.m., the officer had watched that ship's lights flash out as if she had shut down or turned sharply, and that the port light was now visible. 
<clears throat> more slight symbols to the ship upon Lord's order were made between 11.30 p.m. and at 1 a.m., but were not acknowledged. If Titanic was as far from the Californian as Lord claimed that he knew or should have known that more signals would not be visible. A reasonable and prudent course of action would have been to awaken the wireless operator and to instruct him to attempt to contact Titanic by that method. Had Lord done so, it is possible he could have reached Titanic in time to save additional lives. Captain Lord had gone to the chart room at 11 p.m. to spend the night. However, Second Officer Herbert Stone, now on duty, notified Lord at 1.10 p.m. that the ship had fired five rockets. Lord wanted to know if they were uh, company signals, that is, colored flares to use for identification. Stone said he did not know that the rockets were all white. Captain Lord instructed the crew to continue to signal the other vessel with the Morse code lamp and went back to sleep. Three more rockets were observed at 1.50 a.m., and Stone noted that the ship looked strange in the water as if she, as if she were listing. At 2.15 a.m., Lord was notified that the ship could no longer be seen. Lord asked if the lights had any colors in them, and he was informed that they were all white. Californian eventually responded. At around 5.30 a.m., Chief Officer George Stewart, awakened wireless operator Cyril Firmstone Evans, informed him that rockets had been seen during the night and asked that he try to communicate with any ship. He got news of Titanic's loss. Captain Lord was notified, and the ship sent out to render assistance. She arrived well after Carpathia had already picked up the survivors. The inquiries found that the ship seen by Californian was in fact Titanic and that it would have been possible for Californian to come to her rescue. Therefore, Captain Lord had acted improperly in failing to do so. RMS Titanic Survivors and Victims the number of casualties of the sinking is unclear due to a number of factors. These include confusion over the passenger list, which included some names of people who canceled their trip at the last minute, and the fact that several passengers traveled under aliases for various reasons and were therefore double counted or uh, on the casualty lists. The death toll has been put at between 1,490 and 1,635 people. The tables below use figures from the British Board of Trade report on the disaster. While the use of Marconi wireless systems did not achieve the result of bringing a rescue ship to the Titanic before it sank, the use of wireless did bring Carpathia in time to rescue some of the survivors who otherwise would have perished due to exposure. The water temperature was well below, well below normal in the area where Titanic sank. It also contributed to the rapid death of many passengers during the sinking. Water temperature readings taken around the time of the incident were reported to be at 28 degrees Fahrenheit. Typical water temperatures were normally around 45 degrees Fahrenheit during mid-April. The coldness of the water was a critical factor, often causing death within minutes to many of those in the water. Fewer than a third of those aboard Titanic survived the disaster. Some survivors died shortly afterwards. Injuries and the effects of exposure caused the deaths of several of those brought aboard the Carpathia. The figures show stark differences in the survival rates of the different classes aboard Titanic. Although only 3% of first-class women were lost, 54% of those in third class had died. Similarly, five of six first-class and all second-class children survived, but 52 of the 79 in third class perished. The differences by gender were even bigger. Nearly all female crew members, first and second-class passengers, were saved. Men from the first class died at a higher rate than women from the third class. In total, 50% of the children survived, 20% of the men, and 75% of the women. 
The last living survivor, Melvina Dean from England, who was, uh, who was at the time only nine weeks old, was the youngest passenger on board, died at age 97 on uh, May 31st, 2009. Two special survivors were the stewardess Violet Jessup and stoker Arthur John Priest, who survived the sinkings of both Titanic and HMHS Britannic and were aboard RMS Olympic when she was rammed in 1911. RMS Titanic, Retrieval and Burial of the Dead Once the massive loss of life became known, White Star Line chartered the cable ship C.S. Mackie Bennett from Halifax, Nova Scotia, Canada to retrieve bodies. Three other Canadian ships followed in the search, the cable ship Minya, lighthouse supply ship Mont- Montmagny, and sealing vessel Algerine. Each ship left with embalming supplies, undertakers, and clergy. Of the 330 victims that were eventually recovered, 328 were retrieved by the Canadian ships and five more by passing North American steamships. The first ship to reach the site of the sinking, the C.S. Mackie Bennett, found so many bodies that the embalming sample supplies aboard were quickly exhausted. Health regulations required that that only embalmed bodies could be returned to port. Captain Lardner of the Mackay Bennett and undertakers aboard decided to preserve only the bodies of first-class passengers, justifying their decision by the need to visually identify wealthy men to resolve any disputes over large estates. As a result, many third-class passengers and crew were buried at sea. Lardner identified many of those buried at sea as crew members by their clothing and stated that as a mariner, he himself would be considered to be buried at sea. Bodies discovered Bodies recovered were preserved for transport to Halifax, the closest city to the sinking, with direct rail and steamship connections. The Halifax coroner, John Henry Barnsteed, developed a detailed system to identify bodies and safeguard their personal possessions. Relatives from across North America came to identify and claim bodies. A large temporary morgue was set up in the curling rink of the Mayflower Mayflower Curling Club, and undertakers were called in from across eastern Canada to assist. Some bodies were shipped to be buried in their hometowns across North America and Europe. About two-thirds of the bodies were identified. Unidentified victims were buried with simple numbers based on their order in which the bodies were discovered. The majority of recovered victims, 150 bodies, were buried in three Halifax cemeteries, the largest being Fairview Lawn Cemetery, followed by the nearby Mount Olivier and Barandy Hirsch cemeteries. In May 1912, RMS Oceanic recovered three bodies over 200 miles from the site of the sinking, who were among the original occupants of collapsible lifeboat A. When 5th Officer Harold Lowe and six crewmen returned to the wreck site sometime after the sinking, in a lifeboat to pick up survivors, they rescued a dozen males and one female from collapsible A, but left the dead bodies of three of its occupants. After their retrieval from collapsible A by Oceanic, the bodies were buried at sea. The last Titanic body recovered recovered was steward James McGrady, body number 330, found by the chartered Newfoundland sealing vessel Algerine on 22nd of May and buried at Fairview Lawn Cemetery in Halifax on June 12th. Only 333 bodies of Titanic victims were recovered, one in five of the over 1,500 victims. Some bodies sank with the ship, 
with currents quickly dispersing bodies and wreckage across hundreds of miles, making them different to, difficult to recover. By June, one of the last search ships reported that life jackets supporting bodies were coming apart and releasing the bodies to sink. RMS Titanic, Wreck. Reference the main article, Wreck of the RMS Titanic. Titanic was long thought to have sunk in one piece, and over the years, many schemes were put toward raising the wreck. None of it came to fruition. The fundamental problem was the sheer difficulty of finding and reaching a wreck that was over 1,200 feet below the surface in a location where the water pressure is over 6,500 pounds per square inch. A number of expeditions were mounted to find Titanic, but it was not until the 1st of September 1985 that a Franco-American expedition led by Jean-Louis Michel and Robert Ballard succeeded. The team discovered that Titanic had in fact split apart probably near or at the surface before sinking to the seabed. The separated bow and stern sections lie about a third of a mile apart in Titanic Canyon on the, off the coast of Newfoundland. They are located 13 miles from, the in, from inaccurate coordinates given by Titanic's radio operators on the night of her sinking, and approximately 715 miles from Halifax and 1,250 miles from New York. Both sections stuck in the seabed at a considerable speed, causing the bow to crumple and the stern to collapse entirely. The bow is by far the more intact section and still contains some surprisingly intact interiors. In contrast, the stern is completely wrecked, its decks have pancaked down on top of each other, and much of the hull plating was torn off and scattered across the seafloor. The much greater level of damage to the stern is probably due to structural damage incurred during the sinking. Thus weakened, the remainder of the stern was flattened by the impact with the seabed. The two sections are surrounded by a debris field measuring approximately 5 by 3 miles. It contains hundreds of thousands of items, such as pieces of the ship, furniture, dinnerware, personal items, which fell from the ship as she sank or were ejected when the bow and stern impacted the sea floor. The debris field was also the last resting place of a number of Titanic's victims. Most of the bodies and clothes were consumed by sea creatures and bacteria, leaving pairs of chutes and booze, boots, which have proved to be inedible, as the only sign that bodies once lay there. Since its initial discovery, the wreck of Titanic has been revisited on numerous occasions by explorers, scientists, filmmakers, tourists, salvagers, who have recovered thousands of items from the debris field for conservation and public display. The ship's condition has deteriorated significantly over the years, particularly from accidental damage by submersibles, but mostly because of an accelerating race rate of growth of iron-eating bacteria on the hull. In 2006, it was estimated that within 50 years, the hull and structure of Titanic would eventually collapse entirely, leaving only the more durable interior fittings of the ship intermingled with a pile of rust on the seafloor. Many artifacts from Titanic have been recovered from the seabed by RMS Titanic Incorporated, which exhibits them in touring exhibitions around the world and in a permanent exhibition at the Luxor Las Vegas Hotel and Casino in Las Vegas, Nevada. A number of other museums exhibit artifacts either donated by survivors or retrieved from the floating bodies of victims of the disaster. 
On April 16, 1912, the day after the 100th anniversary of the sinking, photos were released showing possible human remains resting on the ocean floor. The photos, taken by Robert Ballard during an expedition led by NOAA in 2004, show a boat, a show a boot, and a and a coat close to Titanic's stern, which experts call compelling evidence that it is the spot where somebody came to rest, and that human remains can be buried in the sediment beneath them. The wreck of the Titanic falls under the scope of the 2001 UNESCO Convention on the Protection of the Underwater Cultural Heritage. This means that all states, party to the convention, will prohibit the pillaging, commercial exploitation, sale, and dispersion of the wreck and its artifacts. Because of the location of the wreck, international waters, and the lack of any exclusive jurisdiction over the wreckage area, the convention provides a state cooperation system by which states inform each other of any potential activity concerning ancient shipwreck sites like the Titanic and to cooperate to prevent unscientific or unethical interventions. Submersible dives in 2019 have found further deterioration of the wreck, including loss of the captain's bathtub. Between July 29th and August 4th, 2019, a two-person submersible vehicle that was conducting research and filming a documentary crashed into the shipwreck. EYOS expeditions executed the sub-dives. It is reported that the strong currents pushed the sub into the wreck, leaving a a red rust stain on the side of the sub. The report did not mention if the Titanic sustained any damage. RMS Titanic, Legacy, Safety. After the disaster, recommendations were made by both the British and American Boards of Inquiry, stating that ships should carry enough lifeboats for all aboard. Mandated lifeboat drills would be implemented, lifeboat inspections would be conducted, etc. Many of these recommendations were incorporated into the International Convention for the Safety of Life at Sea, passed in 1914. The convention has been updated by periodic amendments, with a completely new version adopted in 1974. Signatories to the convention followed up with the national legislation to implement the new standards. For example, in Britain, new Rules for Life-Saving Appliances were passed by the Board of Trade on May 8, 1914, and then applied at a meeting of British steamship companies in Liverpool in June 1914. Further, the United States government passed the Radio Act of 1912. This act, along with the International Convention for the Safety of Life at Sea, stated that radio communications on passenger ships would be operated 24 hours a day, along with a secondary power supply so as not to miss distress calls. Also, the Radio Act of 1912 required ships to maintain contact with vessels in their vicinity as well as coastal onshore radio stations. In addition, it was agreed in the International Convention for Safety of Life at Sea that the firing of red rockets from a ship must be interpreted as a sign of need for help. Once the Radio Act of 1912 was passed, it was agreed that the rockets at sea would be interpreted as distress signals only, thus removing any possible misinterpretation from other ships. Finally, the disaster led to the formation and international funding of the International Ice Patrol, 
an agency of the United States Coast Guard that to the to present day monitors and reports on the location of North Atlantic Ocean icebergs that could pose a threat to transatlantic sea traffic. Coast Guard aircraft conduct the primary reconnaissance. In addition, information is collected from ships operating in or passing through the ice area. Except for the years of the two world wars, the International Ice Patrol has worked each season since 1913. During the period, there has not been a single reported loss of life or property due to collision with an iceberg in the patrol area. In 1912, the Board of Trade chartered the, the the bark Scotia to act as a weather ship in the Grand Banks of Newfoundland, keeping a lookout for icebergs. A, a Marconi wireless was installed to enable her to communicate with stations on the coast of Labrador or Newfoundland. RMS Titanic Legacy Cultural Titanic has gone down in history as the ship that was called unsinkable. For more than 100 years, she has been the inspiration of fiction and nonfiction. She is commemorated by monuments for the dead and by museums exhibiting artifacts from the wreck. Just after the sinking, memorial postcards sold in huge numbers, together with memorabilia ranging from tin candy boxes to plates, whiskey jiggers, and even black morning teddy bears. Several survivors wrote books about their experience, but it was not until 1955 that the first historically accurate book, A Night to Remember, was published. The first film about the disaster, Saved from the Titanic, was released only 29 days after the ship sank and had an actual survivor as its star, the silent film actress Dorothy Gibson. The British film A Night to Remember, 1958, is still widely regarded as the most historically accurate movie portrayal of the sinking. The most financially successful by far has been James Cameron's Titanic, 1997, which became the highest grossing film in history up to that time as well as the winner of 11 Oscars at the 70th Academy Awards including Best Picture and Best Director for Cameron. The Titanic disaster was commemorated through a variety of memorials and monuments to the victims, erected in several English-speaking countries, and in particular in cities that had suffered notable losses. These included Southampton, Liverpool, and Belfast in the UK, New York and Washington, D.C. in the United States, and Queenstown in Ireland. A number of museums around the world have displays on Titanic. The most prominent is in Belfast, the ship's birthplace. RMS Titanic Incorporated, which is authorized to salvage the wreck site, has a permanent Titanic exhibition at the Luxor Las Vegas Hotel and Casino in Nevada, which features a 22-ton slab of the ship's hull. It also runs an exhibition which travels around the world. In Nova Scotia, Halifax's Maritime Museum of the Atlantic displays items that were, that were recovered from the sea a few days after the disaster. They include a piece of woodwork, such as paneling from the ship's first-class lounge and an original deck chair, as well as objects removed from the victims. In 2012, the centenary was marked by plays, radio programs, parades, exhibitions, and special trips to the site of the sinking, together with commemorative stamps and coins. In a frequently commented on literary coincidence, Morgan Robertson authored a novel called Futility in 1898 about a fictional British passenger liner with the plot bearing a number of similarities to the Titanic disaster. In the novel is the ship the SS Titan, a four-stacked liner, the largest in the world and considered unsinkable. And like Titanic, she sinks after hitting an iceberg and does not have enough lifeboats. In Northern Ireland, only recently has the significance of Titanic notably been given by Northern Ireland, where it was built by Harlan and Wolfe, in the capital city, Belfast. While the rest of the world embraced the glory and tragedy of Titanic in it, 
In its birth city, Titanic remained a taboo subject throughout the 20th century. The sinking brought tremendous grief and was a blow to the city's pride. Its shipyard was also a place many Catholics regarded as hostile. In the latter half of the century, during a 30-year sectarian conflict, Titanic was a reminder of the lack of civil rights that in part contributed towards the Troubles. While the fate of Titanic remained a well-known story within local households through the 20th century, commercial investment around RMS Titanic's legacy was modest because of these issues. After the Troubles and the Good, and Good Friday Agreement, the number of overseas tourists visiting Ireland, Northern Ireland dramatically increased to 30 million. That's a 100% rise by 2008. It was subsequently identified in the Northern Ireland Tourism Board Strategic Framework for Action, 2004-2007, that the significance of and interest in Titanic globally was not being fully exploited as a tourist attraction. Thus, Titanic Belfast was spearheaded, along with some smaller projects such as the Titanic Memorial. In 2012, on the ship's centenary, the Titanic Belfast Visitor Attraction was opened on the site of the shipyard where Titanic was built. It was Northern Ireland's second most visited tourist attraction with more than 700,000 visitors in 2016. Despite over 1,600 ships being built by Harland and Wolf in Belfast Harbor, Queens Island became renamed after its most famous ship, Titanic Quarter, in 1995. Once a sensitive story, Titanic is now considered one of Northern Ireland's most iconic and uniting symbols. In late 2018, several groups were vying for the right to purchase the 5,500 Titanic relics that were an asset of the bankrupt, bankrupt Premier Exhibitions. Eventually, Titanic Belfast, Titanic Foundation Limited, and the National Museum's Northern Ireland joined with the National Maritime Museum as a consortium that was raising money to purchase the 5,500 artifacts. The group intended to keep all the items together as a single exhibit. Oceanographer Robert Ballard said he favored this uh, favored this bid since it would ensure the memorabilia would be permanently displayed in Belfast, where Titanic was built, and in Greenwich. The museums were critical of the bid process set by the bankruptcy court in Jacksonville, Florida. The minimum bid for the uh, for the October 11th, 2018 auction was set at uh, $21.5 million U.S. million, and the consortium did not have enough funding to meet that amount. On October 17th, 2018, the New York Times reported that a consortium of three hedge funds, Apollo Global Management, Alta Fundamental Advisors and Packbridge Capital Partners had paid $19.5 million for the collection. That's it for today's episode of Wikiredia. Look, before you go, be sure to hit subscribe, follow us on Twitter at It's Wikiredia, and tell your friends. What do you want to listen to? Send topic ideas to our email, which is wikiredia at pm.me. Our producer and narrator, that's me, is Eric Gorris. Our engineer is OJ Tingles, and our content editor is Johnny Rocketship. We ask you to support this show by following and sharing, but more importantly, just listening. We also ask that you do your part to support Wikipedia itself by considering a donation donation to the Wikipedia Foundation. That can be done at wikipedia.org. All, or at least the vast majority, of the words spoken on this show are from the text of Wikipedia entries, and we're using those words under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license, which grants us, and in fact anyone, the right to adapt the original work remix it, and then to distribute and transmit the work even for commercial purposes. This license requires that we name the author of the original work, which in this case is Wikipedia. 
Wikiredia itself is also distributed under the same Creative Commons attribution, share-alike, 3.0 license. Wikiredia is a production of Eric Public Media and the Alaska Ice Corporation.